the DI Guys podcast was created to share the best ideas, strategies, and concepts so you can have these conversations to help you exponentially grow your DI sales. While they may have lost their hair, they have not lost their minds. Here are the DI Guys, Chris Carlson and Mike Cogdo. This is Chris Carlson, and welcome to this edition of the DI Guys podcast. We hope you had the opportunity to join us for the 2020 DI Summit. It was an amazing event with great presentations. In this episode, we want to replay Dan Squire's presentation. Dan is a partner with the actuarial consulting firm Milliman, and he shared some great insights into the individual disability insurance industry. We hope you enjoy the replay. So Dan Squire, if you can, there we all, oh my goodness, Dan, right on cue. All right, coming to you from the Fortress of Solitude in the third floor of the house here in Portland, Maine. Can you hear me all right, Chris? I got you great, Dan. And I want to give a quick introduction, and then I'm going to let you uh, share your screen, and you can go off to the races. I, I first met Dan at an IDIS conference a few years ago, and, you know, it was one of those advertised, an actuary is going to talk. So I, my dauber immediately went down thinking, oh, my goodness, an actuary. But I will have to tell you that Dan is one of the most entertaining uh, people I know in this business. Uh, he's funny, which I realize can be an oxymoronic for a, an actuary. But Dan truly is going to give some great insights. He's a principal and consulting actuary with Milliman, who is the, the, the go-to consultancy firm for disability insurance in this country. And with Dan, I'm going to turn it over to you so you can wow us with your brilliance. Thank you for the introduction. I, I don't know if I'm a, uh, quite as brilliant when it comes to Zoom meetings. Uh, it says here I'm sharing my screen. Uh, are, are you able to see that, Chris? Loud and clear. We got, we got it, Dan. Thank you. Okay, fantastic. Well, good morning, everyone. And, and uh, Chris, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to a thousand or so insurance producers, none of whom I can see or hear at the particular moment. It's uh, a little different experience for uh, delivering a presentation. Please forgive me if it looks like I'm staring off to the side. I've got a couple of different monitors uh, going here along with uh, some notes. Um, when, when Chris asked me to prepare some comments for this morning, he told me the title of the presentation would be Disability Insurance Behind the Numbers. So I spent a little time and I put together a presentation. I sent him a draft and he said, Gosh, Dan, I didn't mean that many numbers. Uh, so we, we had to take a second crack at this thing and, and pull out a little bit of the math. I put this cover picture on it uh, uh, in recognition of uh, Chris's input. Don't worry, we're not going to go quite that deep uh, into the formulas uh, here. I, I am going to show you a few numbers, uh, though, as we get started here, because one of the first things that I want to do this morning is look at a few highlights from the individual disability market survey that uh, Milliman performs each year. And, and I'll do that to give you a little bit of a picture of uh, what sales activity looks like. Uh, really kind of a big picture for the disability market these days. I'm also gonna talk then a little bit about my own experience, uh, not as an actuary who works with disability insurance, but as an individual disability insurance customer and purchaser, and I and, uh, haven't really gone through that before. So um, I put together some notes here. I thought it might be of interest to you to see what, what someone with that lens on the business decides uh, to purchase for, for their own coverage. So I'll, I'll tell you my own story there, and then uh, we'll wrap up with a couple of more general comments on um, disability insurance market opportunities. 
So let's start out with uh, a couple of notes related to our market study. This is a, uh, a 2019 market study, but it looks back at sales activity in, in 2018. So I'm, I'm sorry it's a bit dated. We're just, uh, we're a month or two in advance of when we'll have the next year's uh, numbers. But I, I think for the purpose of some of the trends that I'd like to talk about today, this, this will be sufficiently recent information to, um, to show you some really interesting things. So let's see, I skipped ahead a little too fast there. Um, the study itself uh, has 15 companies that contribute data to it. And when you look at the names of these companies, you can see that these really are uh, the major players. It's, it's not quite the entire universe, but it's a pretty big piece of the universe for traditional individual disability insurance. Um, it, it, it does not include what's sometimes known as the worksite market. Uh, the, the kind of highly simplified payroll deduction products sold by, uh, say, Colonial or Aflac or Transamerica or some of those. Those may be on individual platform, but it's, it's not the kind of traditional IDI coverage um, that we're talking about this morning. Um, I've got a link here as well uh, to the full study. This is a study that's available on uh, Milliman's website. And uh, there's a lot of information beyond just what I'm sharing today. So uh, if you are a person who likes digging into the numbers and details, there's lots of good information for you to find. Uh, this slide shows overall sales activity over the past five years uh, for the market. There's uh, both a line and a bar. The line uh, measures the uh, premium that's been sold. And then the bar is the number of policies that have been sold. We've seen, uh, I would say, a steady but modest increase in both of those over the past five years. It's nice to see both those lines uh, moving in the same direction. And uh, you might think they always would move in the same direction. It's actually not always the case. We have had situations where we see the premium increasing, but the number of policies staying level or decreasing. And when that happens, it's a sign that growth in the market is not necessarily coming from a higher level of sales activity, but more so from companies being willing to write higher amounts of coverage on the policies that they sell. So if companies raise issue and participation limits in a meaningful way, you might see premiums going up without a lot of new sales activity. So it's, it's nice to see here that uh, a lot of what's going on is, is, is a real growth in, in new policies as well. There's a little longer term perspective sales activity in, in the disability market. If you haven't seen this graph uh, before, it's a really striking one. Um, sorry, there's a little discontinuity in there. We use two different sources for the data. They don't quite line up and, and actuaries are notoriously precise, so I didn't smooth it out too much uh, for you there. But when, when you look at this market, you can see immense growth in the individual disability market in, in the late 80s, really, leading up to the first couple years of the 1990s. Very competitive time in the market. Companies were aggressive on their underwriting. Um, they were selling very generous policy forms. Uh, lifetime benefits were common. Um, so it, it was a fairly aggressive growth period. Unfortunately, it was followed by some very significant retrenchment. And there were a lot of things that happened. That's the subject of another presentation. But um, there was certainly a downturn in morbidity experience focused heavily in the medical market, higher claims on doctors as doctors' incomes fell um, with the introduction of managed care and, and other issues in the medical market. 
So that caused sales to come down and companies to exit the business. And then that sort of hit its bottom around uh, the late 1990s. And since that time, it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's been a flat market, but it's been a slow growth uh, kind of market since then. And that's, uh, that's the activity you see there. The other bump of note there around 2008, 2009 is the last significant recession we had did see a decrease in uh, sales activity in those years. So the next few slides provide some details on um, uh, the type of business being sold. I, uh, one of the limitations of, of working from home is I don't have quite the access to administrative help that I would like. So we've got a lot of numbers on some of these charts. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna focus you on each of these to a particular row or column uh, uh, to really focus on it. The, the annual detail here is less important than the overall number. So on, on this slide, let's take a look at that row that's labeled average. And this shows the proportion of new individual disability sales to various occupations. And you can see that almost 30% of IDI business continues to get sold to doctors and surgeons with another eight or so to, to dentists. So when you look at the medical market as a whole, and then you were to add in nurses and others, you're talking about over 40% of individual disability business sold to uh, professionals in, in the medical occupations of, of one kind or another. There's also a significant amount of business, of course, sold to lawyers. Uh, executives are a big part of the market, but it's interesting to see that the sales to executives have decreased as a proportion of total sales in, um, in recent years here. And, and that can happen for various reasons. I think uh, executives are likely to have more group coverage than others. So if, if group disability insurers get more aggressive in selling higher amounts uh, or modify their plans, that, that could lead to less demand among executives. Um, it's also a little more economically sensitive. The, the healthcare uh, sector, you know, in general, and we'll talk a little more about this later, but the healthcare sector has been pretty recession-proof in, uh, in the past, whereas that's not true of, um, of the executive market. So it's, it's maybe a little more sensitive to um, economic trends. Um, on this next chart, we look at the proportion of business that's sold with uh, non-cancelable premiums, meaning fully guaranteed premiums, as opposed to guaranteed renewable premiums, where the insurance company has the right to change those premiums on a class basis as experience emerges. Again, let's just look at the last column on this one. And it shows you that about 81% of all IDI business is sold with non-cancelable premiums, fully guaranteed premiums. But there's some significant difference uh, by segment. So if we're in the medical market, it's over 90% that's sold that way. This is a market that tends to value the most generous type of coverage and is willing to pay the price for it. But as we start to move then to uh, lawyers and then to executives and other uh, folks in, in more of an office uh, kind of a setting, we see that that proportion drops significantly and it feels a little more like 75% of business sold with non-cancelable premiums. It's still a vast majority of traditional IDI business that's non-cancelable, but it's interesting that almost a quarter of the business sold to um, uh, lawyers, executives, et cetera, is, is on a guaranteed renewable uh, basis. And, and uh, again, I'll come back to that point as we start to talk about um, sales opportunities. Um, here I show a division of the individual disability market into a couple of broad uh, market groupings. Um, again, you can look at that row labeled average. Um, 
little over half the business that's sold is traditional individually sold business. So it's, it's a broker agent meeting with one individual and talking about the coverage and that, that person policy for themselves with no real involvement from uh, the employer. It's a little over half the market. But about 42% of the market these days is what's known as employer-sponsored multi-life business. So that's the sale of three or more individual disability insurance policies to employees of a common employer. And, and generally with some degree of um, sponsorship or promotion by the employer, it doesn't have to be anything complicated uh, or fancy, but, but the idea is you have more than one person at the same employer buying the policy around the same time. And that tends to result in a uh, favorable experience, a little less in the way of anti-selection. It's also obviously a good thing from the sales side. You're selling uh, multiple policies at once and it's, and it's become a very large part of that market. And, and we'll dig into that just a little bit. You do see a number here for professional associations. I wouldn't take that number too seriously on this slide because as I mentioned, it, this includes data only from the companies that really focus in the individual uh, non-CAN market. So, you know, there's a lot of companies that sell association business that uh, aren't participating in this study. So that it's here for completeness, but it's not really a measure of the association market. And that's what that footnote uh, explains there. So the this slide has a lot of uh, numbers on it, but it's kind of an interesting one. It provides you a little further breakdown of the multi-life market that I just defined. We'll look at that bottom row of the table to see some of these numbers. The first thing that we do is split that market into employee-paid business, where the insured person pays the premium themselves, as opposed to employer-paid, which has a little more of that group dynamic where the employer is purchasing the policy on behalf of their employees. If we look at that employer paid business, we see that about 90% of employer paid business has guaranteed standard issue underwriting, meaning that everyone who applies gets a policy with no medical underwriting required. So it's, it's kind of uh, it's like an individual disability version of group insurance from an, from an underwriting perspective. So about 90% guaranteed standard issue. Um, in the employee paid market, it's uh, maybe 55% or so is guaranteed standard issue, with the remainder being some form of, of medical underwriting. So even in this multi-life market, where you have individuals um, you know, kind of paying their own premium in a, in a group setting, there's quite a, a variation in the underwriting methods uh, th that are used there. Um, guaranteed standard issue, when the cases are a bit larger and the participation rates are high, and traditional medical underwriting where the participation, participation rates are lower or the case sizes are a bit smaller. So um, um, I think that's kind of interesting to see the, the prevalence of the different types of underwriting. I think this is the last slide where I'm gonna uh, bury you in numbers here, but I, I also think it's a, a particularly interesting and important one and, and uh, relates to some of the comments in the earlier session as well. This is a slide that shows, according to our study, the distribution of underwriting outcomes for the companies that participate in this study. And if you focus on that average line, you can see that only a little over half of individual disability business during this period was issued as applied for. There's about 15% or so of business that was declined in the rightmost column. And then there's about 30% of business 
that was issued with some form of modified underwriting offer. And that could be, um, it could be an exclusion or a limitation for a specific condition that was observed in someone's medical history. It could be um, a small premium load that's attached for a condition like hypertension, uh, perhaps because someone has some additional risk. But, you know, the, I think this is an indication of some of the challenges that companies and producers face in, in this market when medical underwriting is, is performed. Uh, you know, by the time you're writing policies on people in their 40s and 50s, we've all got some kind of medical history. And this is a generous and expensive coverage. So it's, it's gonna get a close look on, uh, on the medical side. And a lot of times that means that uh, the producer is going uh, to need to be informed about that and manage expectations with the customer and, and you know, be, be able to come back and, and, and sell an alternate offer and, and explain why that's important and, and valuable coverage. A little, a little different experience than you would see, I think, uh, writing just life insurance. Um, so that was kind of a survey of, of the market numbers. I, I haven't gone into a lot of historical morbidity experience in this presentation, but I thought you'd like to see this one slide, which shows a very interesting and striking morbidity trend from the most recent research by the Society of Actuaries on individual disability. This chart shows a measure of the incidence rates for disability insurance, which is to say the frequency of new disability claims. And it's shown as a ratio of actual values to the expected values uh, with a, an industry table used for the expecteds. And, you know, you can see there's really been a striking decrease uh, over the past 25 year period covered by this chart in the level of new disability claims coming in the door. And, and that's, um, I, I always find that fascinating to look at because as actuaries, sometimes, you know, we're wrapped up in, in uh, what's going wrong. You know, how, th th there's an, an economic crisis and, and claims went up a little bit or something's happening in the medical market. And claims went up a little bit and, and we're trying to figure out how to, how to deal with those situations. But when you take a long-term view, 25 years of experience, uh, this is, that does, uh, that kind of evens out. And it's been, uh, it's been a very steady and favorable and ongoing period of improvement with respect to new disability claims um, coming in the door. This doesn't measure full disability costs. It doesn't measure um, the cost related to the length of claim and recovery rates. And certainly there can be challenges in those areas, but I, but I do think it's, uh, it's a striking metric and, and one that you'd be interested in seeing. So that's a survey of uh, some results from the, the market study and, and some of the historical experience. Um, as I mentioned, I think in my early comments, I have spent my whole career, which is now dangerously close to 30 years, um, working in the field of disability insurance. I work with uh, every type of disability insurance, group LTD and STD, uh, individual business, worksite business, everything uh, in between. I work on pricing. I work on uh, uh, financial pieces of it. I've probably priced uh, somewhere between uh, 15 and 20 individual disability portfolios uh, during my years in the business. I've read more count contracts than, than I uh, care to count and study the experience that emerges from uh, individual disability policies. I'm also a real believer in this product, uh, not just from the insurance company side and the financial side, but from the consumer side. I've been uh, an individual disability insurance customer uh, for a long time, I, um, I recommend this 
product to my staff, uh, to my coworkers. And I thought it might be interesting for you to see how I've approached individual disability insurance with respect to my own financial planning and the kinds of choices that I have made in, in what types of policies um, I've purchased for myself. So um, at the risk of getting overly personal with a thousand folks I can't see, let me tell you a little bit about uh, some of my own experience. I started my first job at an insurance company um, right out of college in, in 1991. And that employer offered uh, what's known as a core buy-up group long-term disability plan, meaning that the employer paid for uh, a base amount of long-term disability coverage. In this case, I believe it was $2,000 a month of coverage. And then they provided an option for employees at their own expense to buy up that coverage to 60% of salary in the, in the form of uh, payroll deduction. And, and I have to say it was, you know, knowing, knowing more uh, now than I did in those days about uh, how businesses sold and enrolled, they did a good job. Uh, you know, when I was hired, the manager uh, just kind of treated that as uh, something you needed to do. You know, sign, sign this form to fully protect yourself. And everyone does this. And, and uh, it's a disability insurance company. And, and this is something you need to do. So they really encouraged and promoted that program. And they had a very high take-up rate on the core buy-up. So that's, that's where I wound up in my first experience with disability insurance. But five or six years after that, I um, had been working with individual disability and became a lot more informed about that product and what it could do. And at that time, I decided to um, reduce my LTD coverage to just the core benefit. So I stopped paying for the buy-up um, on LTD. And instead, uh, instead of the buy-up, I purchased an individual disability policy which when you combined it with the LTD would get me to about 60 or 70% replacement of not just my base salary, but my expected bonus as well. And that was the amount of coverage that was available um, at that time. Um, so basically I was replacing a, you know, a, a kind of strict LTD coverage with, uh, with a more generous and comprehensive individual policy. Um, I decided to purchase a guaranteed renewable policy. It was, uh, it was a material cost savings. I was whatever, 25 or 26 years old um, at the time. Um, that cost savings meant a lot. Um, I've saved yeah, roughly 25%. I've had that policy for however many years that is, 20 some years now. The rates have uh, never been increased. Um, so, um, you know, that, that decision proved uh, to be a very successful one uh, for me. The only difference in the coverage was the, the premium guarantee and, and um, and it's just been a pure savings for me. Uh, some of the other product features that I chose, um, I went only for a two-year own occupation period at that time. Um, my thinking was, hey, I'm working in an office kind of job. I'm not a surgeon. Um, you know, if I can't do this office type of work, then I'm not really sure what else someone would tell me I could go back and do. So, you know, so the pure own occupation protection did not feel like important coverage to me. Uh, at that point for the added cost. Um, but I did feel at my young age that a cost of living adjustment was important. If I got disabled, it could be for a very long period of time. Um, future insurance option, because who knows what would happen to my income in future years. And that guarantee of insurability, I think, is a very valuable guarantee. And lastly, I was interested, uh, Mr. Corey, talking a little bit about uh, catastrophic disability. Um, I'm a big believer in, in catastrophic disability. I, I sort of feel like I have a really good work ethic and I'll, uh, I'll do my part to get back to work if I possibly can. 
But if the disability is catastrophic, I may not have the ability to get back to work no matter how much I want to. And, and then the higher level of protection is important to me. So, um, so I did purchase catastrophic at the time. The policy was sold uh, with a multi-life discount. It was fully underwritten, but there were, uh, I was not the only one at the company that purchased the coverage. So we benefited from unisex rates and, and a discount. And uh, the underwriting was clean, but I will tell you, it took about three months from the time I applied to get the policy issued. By the time, you know, we, we got the medical records and we took a blood test and we had a personal history interview and all that stuff got processed and follow-ups and forms and all that, it, it takes a while uh, uh, to get it issued. So, so that was my uh, first-time experience as an IDI purchaser. Next step on the journey was a new job uh, a few years after that at a consulting firm. This is when I moved uh, to Milliman and I've, uh, where I've been ever since. The individual disability policy I had stayed in force, of course. That's why you buy individual coverage. It stays with you when you, uh, when you change jobs. But the LTD plan went away. So uh, the, the old job, I had just that $2,000 core benefit. When I switched jobs, I went back into a more traditional LTD plan because that's what they provided that covered 60% of uh, base pay and the prior year bonus. So if you added up those two amounts, you know, kept the individual policy, suddenly had more generous LTD. I was overinsured um, at the time. It wasn't uh, extraordinary. It wasn't 150 or 200% of income, but, but uh, it was something over 100% of, uh, of my income, uh, not counting the catastrophic benefit. Um, interestingly, the LTD plan, uh, at, uh, at the employer had a tax choice option. That means that um, if I accept the employer paid premiums, which I did, the benefit is taxable, just like group insurance would be. Um, but if I paid the premium myself, which I could elect to do, I'd have to pay the full amount of premium myself. But if I did that, then my benefit would be tax-free, which effectively increases it uh, even more and, and significantly so. Um, I had the ability to do that. I did not choose to do that. I felt, uh, you know, for the reasons I just described, I had sufficient protection at that point. So that added cost didn't seem worthwhile uh, to me at, at, at that stage, although it has remained an option. Um, I also found that the uh, future insurance option I had on my individual policy was never something that I chose to exercise. Uh, for a long time, I would not have been able to uh, because the amount of coverage I had was high enough that I don't think I would have financially qualified. So let's move forward uh, then to my most recent experience with IDI, and this is just a couple of years ago. Um, by that point, I had this job 20 uh, years or so, and uh, over time, the combination of salary increases and the maximum benefit on the LTD plan meant that I was once again eligible to purchase some more individual disability coverage. And, and when I sat down with my agent and we thought about various types of coverage and, and gaps in, um, uh, in my insurance programs in, in general, plus, you know, just family considerations and other things, I did decide that um, that additional coverage would, would be valuable as part of my financial plan. Um, I had a couple different options, right? I could have gone to that tax choice plan, paid the LTD premiums myself and had higher value to my LTD coverage, but it's still LTD coverage. It still doesn't benefit uh, from, from all of the policy provisions that, that you might like to have. It's, it's not as thorough uh, protection, and, and it wouldn't be there if I made a, a change in my job. I could have exercised the FIO that I had on my original coverage, but when my agent and I checked the market, we found that, um, in fact, I could get better coverage at a lower price 
by looking at some other options. So, uh, so that's what I decided to do. Um, I did once again go to a guaranteed renewable coverage. I think my broker was kind of surprised. You know, he he uh, he knew I was uh, active in the in this business, and I think he, he kind of started out thinking the you know the most uh, that my my mindset would all be on the most um, generous coverage and the most value in the in the benefits. But I kind of have my own opinions on on what I see as valuable and not. And I had found the guaranteed renewable coverage extremely beneficial. In the past, I made that same choice again, and once again at a premium savings or, or 20 or 25 percent. I did purchase pure ONOC coverage uh, this time. I feel my job is now a little more specific in its duties. Prior to two months ago, I was quite a road warrior, for example. So if I lost the ability to travel, it might compromise my ability to do my um, you know, my precise occupation that I do now as a consulting actuary um, and, and, and limit me to some different forms of, um, of my current work. So, so that was important. And once again, COLA and catastrophic disability felt important to me. It was a multi-life policy uh, again. Um, I did have a, a, a little different experience on the underwriting side. I had kind of a minor medical condition for which I take some over-the-counter medication. It happens once you, uh, once you have 30 years in the business, uh, I guess. But uh, I never expected it to be an issue in underwriting. I was, I was astonished. But uh, I didn't end up with a two-year limitation uh, in the policy for that uh, condition. And uh, that was despite having just had all the diagnostic tests that said, hey, it's actually no problem. There's no complications and nothing to worry about. Um, never caused me any time away from work. And I uh, believe me, I asked some questions of the underwriters and we looked at some other options, but, but that's what the outcome uh, was. And, and once again, probably partly due to that, it, it took about 90 days from application to issue. So um, it's, uh, uh, it's still a complicated product to buy. It, it, you know, it, it takes a lot of work, but, um, but I thought you'd be interested to see my experience and that, that I've made. I'm going to move forward now and uh, touch on these next slides fairly quickly. I want to give uh, Chris and um, Mike a chance to ask a few questions if they like. But I have put together a few slides on, on market opportunities uh, drawn in part from my personal experience as a buyer, but also as my experience working in this market and with insurance companies. Um, the first one you had some good discussion from, I think, already, which is um, the importance of discussing the need for this coverage with buyers who aren't instinctively aware of it. Corey made the point that um, it's a unique time during this pandemic uh, to be able to talk about the need. I think that is important. I was really struck at how uh, critical illness policies hardly ever would cover conditions like this. I mean, the name of the policy is critical illness. And, and you would think in a, in a pandemic, you know, thank goodness I have the coverage, but, but you usually don't. Um, Disability coverage is the opposite. It's it's comprehensive. And if you miss work for accident or illness, your disability policy is going to take and not ask too many questions, uh, 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 you know, about is it this disease or that disease. Um, I believe that supplemental disability sales, individual disabilities sold on top of group long-term disability insurance, is a, a tremendously important market sometimes one that is underappreciated both uh, by customers, employers, and, and sometimes by uh, producers. If someone has LTD coverage already, it does not mean that they're not a good prospect for individual disability. It means that if they get disabled, uh, it's going to be a 40% pay cut when they need uh, the protection even more. Um, my policies have been purchased on top of, of group LTD. I've been uh, pushing my staff 
to, to think about the same, uh, the same kind of coverage. I think sometimes when you see uh, LTD in place, it's actually a, a good sign that, that there's some awareness of uh, disability coverage and, and it could be a real good opportunity uh, uh, to talk to folks. The, um, the, the plan maximums on LTD um, can really cause some challenges for folks. And if they're ignoring, if the plan ignores bonuses, um, then, then even more so. I think there's a big opportunity in that market. Um, we've talked a little bit about uh, multi-life business. Um, you know, guaranteed standard issue business is a big part of the multi-life market. It's also a specialized kind of sale, both for producers and for insurance companies. It's, it's a dynamite market, and I encourage you to explore it. But I also think sometimes that the fully underwritten multi-life market is not fully appreciated. This is a magnificent market. It's, uh, this works beautifully for, for everyone who's involved. Insurance companies love it because the morbidity experience is terrific. Um, it's great for customers because they can get a discount of 15% uh, or more. Uh, female applicants can immediately get unisex rates, which is a very significant savings to them in this market. And of course, the producer is selling more than one policy at a time. Um, it's, it's almost like being able to pay a referral bonus to your, to your customer. And don't quote me on that to regulatory authorities, but, but you know, your customer is going to get a discount on their coverage as the result of having uh, some other coworkers uh, in, involved in this. The, the discount isn't just uh, a nice-to-have thing. It's not a sales gimmick. It's because the experience on those policies is better as the result of, of a broader outreach. It's, it's just that much closer to group business. So... Fully underwritten multi-life businesses is a terrific market. Um, I also think it's important not to be afraid of, of guaranteed renewable business. I, um, I've talked about that a little bit in my own experience. There uh, is generally a significant price difference there. Corey, I, uh, I think, um, was talking a little bit about, you know, often starting out sales presentations with kind of the, the, the full, the Cadillac Escalade, I think was the, the term used and then and then looking at some other options for people who are price conscious um, uh, this is one of those options that I, I think sometimes gets uh, insufficient attention but it's one that for me has been very valuable a lot of attention spent in the individual disability market on sales to business owners can be really complicated for financial reasons uh, detailed tax returns and and how you account for income and and uh, for overhead expense policies. It's a great market, but it's a pretty specialized one. Um, one that I think um, producers and companies are starting to think about a little more is, you know, uh, business owners sounds sort of big and important and complicated. At the same time, we hear about the gig economy and hear about freelance workers. Those folks are business owners too, just on a different kind of structure and scale and, and magnitude. It's a really interesting market. It's, uh, there aren't a lot of you know, perfect offerings out there right now. Some companies have guidelines that they can use to issue coverage for new business owners. My personal view is there's probably more that can be done there. Um, that, uh, you know, it's going to be a market of an increasing importance. And I, I think the, the, the pandemic has probably only accelerated that as, as traditional work environments are being challenged a bit and, and, and people are thinking about how their work situations may change. So, Creative thinking about coverage amounts and coverage designs uh, could be very interesting here. And finally, we talked a little bit about different underwriting approaches and about how so many individual disability applications wind up, you know, taking 90 days to issue or having coming back with alternate offers and so on. Um, I think increasingly companies are starting to look at 
automated approaches for um, underwriting processes. Some of this is already happening a lot. There's a lot of prescription drug checks that get done as part of the underwriting process. For example, some businesses sold in simplified ways, but I, I think there will be increasing opportunities there to bring in not only prescription drug data, but data from other third-party sources and really build out more thorough predictive um, underwriting algorithms that can help companies issue business almost in real time. Um, probably in combination with products that are designed to support that. It may not be the same policy of $20,000 a month you're selling to the, uh, to the physician uh, today, but it really could help broaden that market a little bit in, in certain types of, of coverage. So those last two are, are very much work in progress, but I, I thought they would be um, of interest to you as, as potential future opportunities. Um, Chris, I've gone pretty long. I think I've saved a, a little bit of time for questions though, so let me let me stop here and, and see if there are some things that, that you uh, or Mike might like to talk about. Perfect, Dan, if I can get you to quit showing your screen, sharing your screen, that way we can see your pretty face. Well, we can, uh, we can try. Okay, so I lost your audio for just a second. Can you hear me again? Okay, I got you. So Dan, I got a couple of quick questions for you. Uh, one is a comment and you, and you can make a, a follow-up comment, but I thought it was very interesting that an actuary who prices products, ascertains risk, on two different occasions, consciously purchased a guaranteed renewable product in an industry that we tend to preach, 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 non-can. Didn't know if you <laughs> want to make another comment. You, you did a good job explaining why, but just see if you had any other follow-up comments to that. Well, you know, I, I, I guess there are, there are uh, two things. So for, first of all, actuaries get nervous about price guarantees from, from the side of the, you know, from the, from the insurance company side, right? Because it's, it's a very long-term guarantee on, a, on what can be a volatile, a volatile business. Um, it's, so it's, it's always been kind of interesting to me that guaranteed renewable wasn't pushed more by insurance carriers uh, uh, than it is uh, for, for that reason. Um, you know, I didn't, when I went in to buy my first policy, I didn't, um, I didn't decide on guaranteed renewable for, for risk reasons. It was really a cost benefit decision. Um, you know, the, the, the non-cancelable policy that was available to me was quite a bit more expensive. Um, I was feeling kind of cost conscious uh, at, at the time. Um, seemed to me that all the other coverages I had uh, for insurance of any kind are subject to price changes. So I, I didn't feel like I was giving up a whole lot by, uh, by taking that risk. Um, my second time around, um, you know, the, the, and this is just a couple years ago, you know, the, the, the price point was still obviously important. I mean, if they'd been the same price, I would have purchased a non-cancelable coverage. Um, but the, pr the price point was still important, but, but now I had 25 or 30 years of working in this market and hadn't really seen a lot of rate increases on, on this coverage. And we, you know, we've talked about there have been some downturns and some challenges. Sometimes claims go up when there's a recession or they go up a little bit in, uh, in the medical market, but uh, the company's selling guaranteed renewable business. Um, I, I, I can't say it's an absolute, but I haven't seen a lot of rate increases in that market, even through those long market cycles. So I, um, I, I just think it's a good value from, from a customer perspective. I'm not suggesting you shouldn't sell uh, the, the guarantees, uh, you know, by any means, because I, I think 
certainly there's value to the, to the guarantee. And, um, and it's one of the things that distinguishes this coverage from, from group coverage. So I, I think it's helpful in, in that regard, but it's not for everyone. And if you're dealing with a customer who's feeling some pressure on the price side or who's trying to decide what do I want to pay for? Would I rather pay for ONOF or would I rather pay for catastrophic disability, you know, versus the non-cancelable guarantee? Um, then uh, I, I think it's valuable to have non-CAN versus GR as, as part of that equation um, uh, where it can be. Appreciate those comments. Um, Dan, as you look through your actuarial lens, what, what are you thinking will or won't happen because of COVID-19 when you start to analyze products and pricing going forward? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. And, uh, you know, of course, it, it's still really early in understanding this, this virus and, and, and the pandemic and, and the shape that, that, that things are going to take. So uh, it's, you know, we don't, we don't really know enough now to be uh, able to kind of quantify things or be, be very specific in, in predictions, but there's a few areas that, that seem to me are, are going to be important. You know, the, the first one that I think is um, key to recognize for, for this market is individual disability policies are usually sold with an elimination period of 90 days, uh, often 180 days. That's very helpful with respect to, uh, just kind of managing any potential influx of claims specifically for COVID-19, that disease tends to run its course uh, faster than that. Um, so I, I don't think we're going to see a huge spike of new claims in the door in the near term, specifically for this in the way that you might on a short-term disability plan or, or for health insurance um, claims. So, so that's helpful. But at the same time, I think there's some information coming out that perhaps this disease has some longer lasting impacts on bodily systems for those who, who've had it, that, that it may not just be, you know, two or three weeks and, you, and you're all better and you never worry about it again. There can be some, perhaps some lasting impacts on uh, cardiac conditions or, or, or kidneys or lungs and, and so on. That's the part we don't know yet from a morbidity perspective. So, you know, we're kind of waiting uh, to see what, what that might look like. There are also some secondary um, impacts, I think, to the extent that there's a prolonged impact on the economy um, that can flow through to experience on individual disability business. Clearly, the unemployment rates are way up. I think numbers I've seen recently, you know, it suggested it's kind of tripled since the, the beginning of the year, 15% or something in, in a recent number. Don't know what the duration of that will be like, but if it's, if it's you know, an ongoing and, and prolonged duration, then high periods of unemployment can lead to some pressure on new disability claims. You know, people who are at work but managing health conditions um, may be less inclined to do that if they feel their jobs are at risk, um, uh, you know, because of uh, employment situations or the economy. It also makes it more difficult to return to work if, um, if you've gone out on claim for whatever reason and then, and then your job is gone or there's just fewer other opportunities to go back to. So, the secondary economic impacts are important. Dan, and last, tell you what. As you say, lastly, I think medical professionals, you know, feeling probably some stress and pressure and, and uncertainty and, and consideration with 40% of the business being sold to them. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, Dan, I really appreciate you taking time today. Very insightful comments, uh, especially to the DI geeks of the world out there who really do actually like to get into numbers. And thanks for presenting in a way that really makes sense for the average advisor's practice that he or she can determine what they want to do. So again, thank you for your time and the preparation and then delivery, Dan. We really appreciate my, it. My pleasure. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.